Thank you for tuning in at Ravenna Assembly of God. We hope you enjoy this message and are blessed from it. If you want to tune in to more messages, log on to RavennaAG.com and search under the media tab. Thank you and God bless. It's too early. How do you like that? You get to preach all that much longer, right? <laughs> his, his wife just patted him on the leg. You could, you could read her lips. No, sir. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this morning we has we have as our, our guests Daniel and and Sarah Connor, and we're excited to have them. They're itinerating. They're getting ready to head out to the bold country of France. And uh, you're, you're not related, so don't worry about it. Otherwise, we could could be. We got a Connor over here. You, I believe you spell your names. Yes, you do spell your names differently. You're an OR, he's an ER. I just need to finish up and turn it over so that... But this morning, uh, the reason... I, I, they're itinerating. So they're, they're not on a missions list yet. I like teasing like that, don't you? But uh, we're looking forward to a long relationship with them. And so uh, I'm going to be asking them to come and to share with us in just a minute, because I have a video I want to share with you, a video that says something. I, I know a lot of times, I, I, <laughs> I, I remember early on in ministry, the pastor would avoid telling anybody that we were having missions, because if they said that we were having a missionary speaker coming, nobody came. And no, yeah, seriously, it, it, was a, it was a fact that that they, they, they didn't want to, you know, missions just was, hey, friends, how many know missions is huge? It, 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 in other words, there's no way to reach this world with what we've been commanded to do. I can't go to France. I, I, can, I can speak a little French. Forget it. Anyways. we <laughs> oui. oui. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Anyways, uh, if we don't care, who does? How many know that France is not just their problem, it's our problem? There are so many that need to be reached. And in a country that I'll let them explain about what's going on and what's taking place. But I I just, I want to stir you this morning to realize, hey, you know what? This is our burden as well. And that's why we have them this morning sharing with us, getting ready to do what we can't do, but we can enable them to be our hands, our feet, and our voice in a country called France. So take a moment, sit back, and enjoy this little video. What's up with your box? That's not mine. Oh, well, how long has it been here? Since before I got here. I don't know. It's not my, it's not my problem. Well, what is it? It's a problem. Oh, a problem. Right. Well, should I look at it? Knock yourself out. Uh, but you might want to think about that. Oh, why? Well, like I said, that's a problem. Well... 
Whose problem is it? I don't know. It was here before I got here. Wait, so you don't know whose it is? No, and honestly, I don't really care. I've got more important things to do. Yeah, well, someone has to care. I mean, it can't just sit here forever. It's got to be someone's problem. Why? Why does it have to be someone's problem? Just don't look at it. Pretend it's not even there. Hey, <laughs> there is no problem. What? That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, wait, so what you're saying is it's not your problem. Right. And it's not my problem. Yeah. Then whose problem is it? Which one do you want me to use here? <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was a great video about whose problem is it. I think that's a big thing in missions is that we can push the problem off. Um, well, good morning. Uh, we are Daniel and Sarah Connor. And uh, even if your name is spelled differently, it's nice to meet another Connor. Uh, you can probably tell, we're, uh, or at least I am Irish. Um, and so all our kids have a little bit of a tint of red. Um, but we are so blessed to be here. You can go to the next slide, and you'll see that uh, we just had a new baby. And so James is 10 weeks old. So give it up for my wife. For <laughs> we have two little girls. Sophia is three. Uh, Emily is one and a half. And James is 10 weeks old. So uh, we do not sleep much. Uh, but that is okay. God is good. And, and we have been very blessed. Um, you can go to the next slide, and I'll, I'll have Sarah share this part. All right, so if you guys want to pull out your phones really quick, if you have Facebook, you can find our Facebook group, which is also on the back of our prayer card and up here, but it's the Connor Crew in France, and that's where you can see everything that we're doing while we're itinerating, and then also once we get to France, everything that's going on there when we get there, and we also have an Instagram as well. If you don't have Facebook on your phone, make sure you take a prayer card and find us on Facebook when you get home to your computer. Yeah, so uh, there's more than enough prayer cards for everyone. Um, as you'll see, our son is not on here yet because he was just born after we had already had these made. And so in about a week or two, we're supposed to have them come. And so our goal is to resend a bunch of those out to churches that we visited so you can see our boy on here because it's just the girls. But there's more than enough prayer cards, so take them. Our information is on the back. And so um, if you have it on your phone, you could add us on today. Right now it's on the screen. Um, or you can go home and on the back, Facebook or Instagram, it's an amazing way for, uh, for people to follow along. Not everyone opens up emails anymore. The people are just like, oh, I'll open it later, and then like they never get to it. But uh, on Facebook or on Instagram, if you join our group, then as you're scrolling through social media, looking at your grandkids or your grandparents, whatever, and then uh, you'll will come up, you know, automatically because you would be friends with our group. And so uh, it's a really great way to stay connected in what God is doing in France. But this morning, I want to share a story about a missionary, a missionary that left his home, left it, sold everything he had, and he went to another country. He went to a place um, that wasn't his home. He went to a people that didn't look like him, talk like him, act like him, or speak like him. And he learned their language, and he learned to live like them, and slowly, one by one, uh, people started coming to the faith. But the problem with this story is that it's the wrong faith, and that this, is, this was a Muslim missionary. This is the reality of France today, is that we're not the only missionaries going to France. We're not the only ones going to try to reach a country. This is what's happening. France is the number one country in Europe for Muslims. For number-wise and per capita-wise, the number one, they have the most Muslims in any European country. Um, in, in Europe in general, right now, it's uh, 3% Christian. 3% in Europe. France doesn't reach half of that. 
France is 1.2%. I looked up other countries that are 1.2%. Iran in the Middle East is 1.2% Christian. That's the reality of France today. That's where they're at. It's, not, it's no longer World War II France that we have this idea and this picture of Europe. In the past few decades, there's been a steep decline where they want nothing to do with God. It's a very anti, anti-God, very secular society. It's not neutral anymore. It's very against God. And this is the reality of France. You can go to the next slide. <clears throat> so people ask us all the time, say, why France? And it's a great question, I know. Uh, and so uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and in the sixth grade, God called me to be a missionary uh, in my room reading the Bible. And God spoke to me saying, if I can use Paul, who considered himself to be a chief of sinners, then I can use you. I said, Lord, I'm willing. And so from then, God has continued to call me into missions, but I had no idea where I was called, and I'll let my wife tell her part of the story. So Daniel grew up in a Christian home, and I did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, my family was very happy, um, everything was going great, but I still just, I felt like something was missing in my life, and I didn't know why, because from the outside, it seemed like I should have everything that I needed, and nothing should be missing. And I didn't realize what it was until this girl that sat behind me in history class in high school, she invited me to her youth group, and she invited me over and over and over again until finally I was like, fine, I'll go. And I went, and I met Jesus, and he changed my life radically. And I started going to youth group every Wednesday, and eventually I started walking to church every Sunday because my parents wouldn't go with me. And after that had been going on for a while, I had the opportunity to go on a missions trip to El Salvador. And when I came home from that missions trip, everything felt different, and I felt like God was calling me to be a missionary And I had no clue what that was going to look like, what that was going to mean for my life, but I went to Bible college to pursue that calling, and that's where I met Daniel, and we were both called to missions. We got married, and we became youth pastors, and all the while knowing that we're called to missions, but we don't know where we're going or when we're going, but just trusting God that he was going to give us that information when we needed it. Yeah, what's really cool about her story so her, her church was, like, really close by. Like, I see there's some homes over there. So she would just, like, walk right over across the street by herself. It's a little teenage girl. And so uh, of a friend that invited her was uh, not in a Christian home either. Someone had invited that girl. And so it was a friend of a friend. And so you never know who you can invite in a small group or in a class or an outing or a men's group, women's group. You never know when you invite someone who they're going to invite and the family that's going to be changed. And one by one, her family came to the Lord. Even her mom being baptized in the Holy Spirit until two years ago, uh, her father gave his heart to the Lord and at an altar call when I was preaching in a service. And so to see her whole family come to the Lord because someone invited a girl who invited another girl. Now, that's been our mission for the past few years. We've been in Cleveland for six years, and our whole goal was just heart change. We, were just, we, we want to see lives changed. If you don't know Jesus, we want to see you know Jesus. If you know Jesus, we want to see you more dedicated and on fire for God. And that's always been our heart. And so we have uh, very unique backgrounds, um, coming from a Christian home and having that perspective, and coming from a secular home and having that, per- that perspective um, really helps us get a grasp on France. So we both have this call to missions. We're youth pastors, but we have no idea where. If you were to ask us, hey, what's God called you to? 100% missions. Where are you going to go? I don't know. And so we're like, but we're going to keep praying. We're going to keep trusting. And three and a half years ago, we were at a minister's retreat. And there was just hundreds of pastors praying and worshiping in the same room. And before the speaker even got up, or just in the middle of worship, all of a sudden I had a vision of the French flag. You can go to the next slide. I had a vision of the French flag right before my eyes. And I'm like, all right, I never had a vision before. All right, God, if this is you, I'm in. Okay? 
And the Bible says to test the spirit. So even if you hear an audible voice one day, it better line up with the word of God or it's not from God. So it always has to line up with the Bible. And so I'm, okay, God, if you're going to speak to me, you're probably going to speak to my wife. So after service, I'm like, did God tell you where we're called to go? Um, and she's like, no, but in the middle of worship, uh, I felt God convicting me saying, you need to pray again and ask where you're supposed to go. She's like, well, you haven't been telling me. And she's like, well, pray again, and I'm going to tell you. And so she was praying, and I got the answer. I'm like, that's crazy. It was right in the middle of worship at the same time. But I'm not going to tell you. I, I want you to hear from God. And so we prayed in church that God answers prayer. God still speaks today. And so we prayed a few weeks go by. I asked her again, and she's like, I think God told me uh, a country that we'd never talked about before. I said, well, that's exactly how it was for me. We never talked about this country in terms of missions. And so I'm like, let's write it down. I'm like, there's no way she's going to know what vision I had because I had said nothing up to that point. But we both had France written down. And God has continued to confirm that call. And so when people ask us why France, the number one and most important reason why is because God has called us to France. We're going because God has called us. The second reason is because there is a great need. Like I shared, France right now is 1.2% Christian. There is a desperate need in France. You go to the next slide. I'll be showing um, some pictures of old cathedrals and churches that uh, a lot of people think of churches when they think of France. They think, well, France has a lot of churches. The reality is that France has a lot of museums, or France has a lot of um, places that are completely abandoned and empty. You can go to the next slide. Uh, these, the, all the churches you're going to see up here are beautiful churches, but they're empty. They're broken. They're, they need uh, fixed. Um, they need people. On the back of our prayer card, like I said, I encourage all of you to take some, and you can even take multiple because we're getting new ones soon. But our main verse here is Daniel 9.17. You go to the next slide. It says this, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. That's the reality of France right there, that they have a sanctuary. You can go to the next slide. But it's desolate, that they need a reawakening of the gospel. And I'll be honest, France does not need someone to donate clothes. They're not, they're not that type of country. They don't need someone to donate food. They don't need someone to donate shoes. They don't need someone to, to dig a well. But they need someone to dig a spiritual well because they're spiritually dry. And emissions is not about living conditions. You go to the next side. I've heard people say, well, why would you go to a country that has buildings and money? Well, Las Vegas must be a Christian city because they have lots of buildings and lots of money. But that's not what missions is about. We see Paul, he went to Rome, and it was one of the wealthiest cities of the time, but it had nothing to do with that. He wanted to go to a place that had influence. If you reach France, can you imagine the influence that would have around the world? There's over 40 countries around the world that their national language is French. 40 Francophone countries, many of them in Africa. I've had missionaries tell us, we actually even had a lot of missionaries support other missionaries. It's like because we have a heart for missions already. And so we do that, other missionaries support us, and they're like, hey, if France gets reached for the gospel, man, that would have a huge impact in our country in, in Africa. And so France, um, as you can see up here, this, you can go to the next one, just continued places time and time again. All the churches over there, so many of them are desolate and broken. If you guys were in France today as a church, this would be a mega church. The average church size, average healthy church size of France is about 30 people. That's the healthy size. That includes women and children, old, young. Um, this, this is what's happening in France. You go to the next slide. The next one. This one's an interesting one. So you can only have so many museums. You can only have so many of them abandoned and rotting. And they're trying to figure out what to do with all these churches because they have these historic buildings. And so this is just south of France. This happens all over Europe. This is a skate park. You can see uh, there's a half pipe right there in the bottom. And the guy in the bottom left, he's on a skateboard. They painted over the stained glass because there's so many churches that they have no idea what to do with them because, well, of course, you're not going to have church in them because no one goes to church. 
That's, that's what it, France is like right now. And so um, there's other, uh, all over Europe, there's some where right where the altar used to be, there's now a stripper pole because it's a strip club. I mean, that's, this, is, this is Europe. Um, this is nothing new for them. It's been like that for a few decades now. And uh, I, I knew they were secular, but when I did more research, I didn't realize how far they have come. Um, you know, there can be different programs you do in a country, but if there's no actual body of Christ that someone can get plugged into to be radically saved and set free from addiction and bondage that they can go to, then w- nothing's going to have a lasting impact. We need the body of Christ. So when people say, what are you going to do in France? We're going to plant churches. We're not going to build buildings. They have enough buildings. They don't need buildings. The church is not a building. The church is a people. It's the hands and feet of Christ. It's living and active. It's a place that Sarah got plugged into where her life was changed and her family was changed. And she didn't get that from a museum. She didn't get that from old stones. She got it from a living, active community. And that's what we want. We're going to go to France and we're going to be planting churches. We're going to be planting people. And we're going to go in a place where there can be a, a place that is actively changing the community. The churches in France are not actively changing the community. They're history where people and visitors come to see what has happened. Go to the next slide. It's the last one here that I have. It's, it, it's a really accurate picture of, of France and the history of Christianity. They have a beautiful, rich history of Christianity. It's a beautiful picture, but it's broken. It's empty. It's dead. It needs new life. Our, our, on top of our theme verse, our prayer says, pray for France to have a reawakening of the gospel. We need that in America, don't we? Every place around the world, Acts 1.8 says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, the Jews had a problem with one of those, and it was Samaria. Why would you go to Samaritans? They had the law. They followed you, and now they, they disobeyed you, and now they're, they're half Jewish, or they're Samaritans. We don't want anything to do with them. Why would you go to them? They had the law. People say that all the time. Why would you go to France? They used to obey God. Why would you do that? But God has called us to go everywhere. There's no country that a missionary should not go to. We need to go everywhere. Because these, I, I pray that people don't say that about us. Why would you plant churches in Ohio with this Ohio for Jesus initiative? Because everyone needs to hear about the gospel. And the French people are no different. They need to hear about the gospel. The Muslims coming over in so many numbers, they need to hear about the gospel. And so we're going to France. Would you be praying with us? Um, one, of the, one of our prayer goals, and this just makes it easy for people to understand kind of where we're at. So we just recently started fundraising a few months ago. We still have about another year. We're at 19% of our budget. Um, $100 in commitment a month is 1%. That kind of gives an idea. And we had this Catholic family that, that we knew. And they're Catholic, but they're, like, act, they're not like nominal Catholic. They actually love Jesus. They're reading the Bible. like They're telling their kids all about Jesus and raising them right. And so they're like, hey, we see what's happening in Europe because they're European. They said, we want to support you, and they picked us up for 100 a month. That's a Catholic family supporting a Pentecostal, Assembly God minister, going to plant churches in Europe. And so, come on, like, that God is good. And so, um, would you be praying with us as we raise our support? Would you be praying for our family as my wife wrangles three kids while I'm preaching and stuff like that? And would you pray that we get some sleep? <laughs> and pray for the people of France. Uh, as we go, we're planting in teams. We're not doing it alone. Uh, effective missionaries aren't the ones that reach a country. They reach the people that reach the country. Uh, my uncle, um, uh, my, un- my great-great-uncle, which would be my grandmother's uncle, um, I got to meet him at the end of his life. He was in his 90s. He was the first Assemblies of God missionary to South Korea. When he went there, there was hardly any Christians. He planted Bible colleges. He planted churches. And he didn't reach Korea, but the people he reached, uh, they reached Korea. One of his disciples was Dr. David Yonggi Cho, who planted the Yodo Full Gospel Church, which is the, the world's largest church in the world right now. Um, they, send, they have over 800,000 members. They send out so many missionaries every year. 
And that was because my uncle reached someone that planted that church. My uncle didn't reach that country, but the people he did reached that country. And so that's what missions is all about. So would you praying with us? But let's pray, and then we'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, God. Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, you are faithful. Lord, you are mighty. God, you have told us, Lord, uh, a directive, God. You told us before you left, Lord, about the Great Commission. Lord, that is for everybody, Lord, every person, God, that we take up that Great Commission, Lord, that we go, Lord, that we send, that we give, that we pray. God, would you be with us today, Lord, as we dive into your word? Would you open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, and our souls, God, Lord? We, would we be changed by your word, Lord? When we find something in, in the Bible that's uncomfortable, God, will we be the one that changes? We don't change the word. The word changes us. So, God, would you be with us today and bless this church, Lord? Bless our family, bless France, and bless America. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, my favorite part is getting into the word. I don't like to talk about my, myself as much here. So if you have your Bibles, it will be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles on your phone or, or on the, the good old-fashioned, uh, you guys can turn to John 4.35, and that's going to be one of our theme verses for today. Um, but today, uh, my sermon is called Harvest Time. The time is now. That's the whole point today, is that the time is now. We don't have all day. <laughs> we don't have eternity to, to reach this world. We, we have a limited time, and the time is now. Today, we're going to be looking over the words of Jesus concerning the harvest, its plentifulness, its window of opportunity, and its lack of workers. So let's begin in John four thirty-five. <clears throat> Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So Jesus, he likes to talk about spiritual things and physical things. He talks about water, that's actually water, and then talks about spiritual water. He talks about fish, and then spiritually fishing for men, and so he does this with the harvest. He starts off, we know that Jesus is speaking four months away from the harvest, because he's saying, okay, you look around, there's probably fields around him, and you can see that in four months there will be a harvest. So he's speaking four months before the harvest. We know the exact time he's, he's speaking this. But then he says, I tell you, lift up your eyes. He's talking about the spiritual eyes. The harvest is now. So he's talking about a literal harvest, and then he talks about a spiritual harvest. The literal harvest is ready in four months. I mean, you know, when, when it's harvest time, it's go time. Like, there's no time to delay. But then there's spiritual harvest. If it is now, then it's go time. There's no time to delay. The time is now. So let's first begin by talking about the harvest. Would God really send us out if there was nothing to harvest? No, we know that God sent us out, and not only that, but we're told that it is plentiful. We're talking about a window of opportunity. These are three things we're going to come back to multiple times. Could a farmer just wait whenever he wanted to to harvest his crops? Let's say the harvest is now, and I'm like, you know, I'm busy. I'm going to wait six months. I hope these ripe crops are still ripe in six months. Could a farmer do that? Could he wait even like two weeks? Right? The moment the harvest is on, it's go time. Like, uh, I love avocados, but you have like six minutes to eat those, and it's bad if you don't. Okay? So I'll buy a bag. I'm walking by every day, and then like, I don't choose when I eat them. They choose me. Like, one day it's like, all right, it's ready. And if you, don't, they're like, if you don't eat me now, you're going to regret it tomorrow. And so sometimes I'm having guac at home. I make homemade guac and hummus, and I'm eating it. I'm just like, I didn't choose it today, but it's going to be bad tomorrow. If you take a bite out of an apple and you set it on the counter, and you come back six hours later, please don't eat it. It's not the same apple, okay? Oh, the moment you take the bite, the window of opportunity has started, and you got t- its time is ticking. Like, you need to eat that apple, okay? 
All right, so that's that's the harvest. When the harvest is ready, it's ready now. It's not like, uh, let's wait a little bit. It's go time. Let's get those crops. There are doors that are open that we need to take advantage of because one day they're going to be shut. Let's talk about the workers. Let's say you have a harvest, okay, and now it's actually ready, and you're ready to go, and the farmer brown, he's like, I'm ready to go. I'm going. And he goes by himself with no help. And he's out in the field in the heat of the sun all day long. What's going to happen? He's never going to bring in a full harvest by himself. He'll be out there on time and ready, but if he doesn't multiply himself, if he doesn't have the help that he needs, then he'll be out there all day long harvesting crops, and he'll harvest crops, but the full harvest will never be brought in. We're not going just to win people, but we want to multiply ourselves so we can bring in a full harvest. A farmer needs laborers, workers, servants, machines. He alone is not capable of bringing in a full harvest. We're, we're not capable. We're not it. Jesus multiplied himself and went to 12 disciples, and he sent them out. There, no farmer is going to go alone and say, you know what? I'm going to do everything myself. That's not, that's not going to happen. So if you walk away with anything today, it'll be up on here. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready, and the harvest needs workers. Now, the first two, there's nothing we can do about it. We're told, regardless whether you pray for it or not, there is a harvest. We're told that. Whether you pray for it or not, there is a harvest. Whether you like it or not, there's a harvest. Number two, the harvest is ready. Whether you pray for it or not, whether you like it or not, the harvest will be ready. And number three, this actually comes down to us. And then we'll see in here, this is where Jesus tells us to pray. This is what we're supposed to pray for. This is like the ball is in your court. This is what we're supposed to do. Not my problem. It's our problem. Okay? And so harvest needs workers. That's up to us. That whole thing, the whole Great Commission, bam, third point. The first two, there are givens. Whether, you like, whether we sleep on the clock and as a church we do nothing and we sin, the sin of omission, there will still be harvest and they'll still be ready. And that's a problem. We do need workers. So let's go to the first point. Number one, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what we're told to pray for. Not that there would be a harvest, not that the harvest would be plentiful. Those are givens. We're supposed to pray for workers because there is a harvest and it is plentiful. We're supposed to pray for workers. Now, uh, as you're reading the Bible, if you don't read the Bible already, read your Bible. Like, I can't stress that enough. Get into the word of God that will change your life, okay? Get into the word of God. You don't have enough time. Do it while you're eating. I used to do that in a work break. I would work all day, and then on my break, I would have the Bible. Do it in the morning, evening, whenever you can. There is time. If you need to, have it read to you, okay? But get into the Word. Um, But the Bible has chapters and verses that are added on later on, okay? And that's great. It's helpful for us to understand and say, hey, John 3.16, if we didn't have the chapter 3 and verse 16, you'd be like, hey, that that one in John later on. And so they're, they're really helpful, but they're added later on, and so sometimes they can actually distract us, and we, we stop the story when the story continues. And this is actually what happens in this verse here, when Jesus says, hey, like, there's a harvest, it's plentiful, but you need to pray for workers, chapter ends. But the story doesn't, and we, a lot of people don't realize this, but the very next thing that Jesus does is that he calls the 12 disciples. The very next thing, we see that Jesus, uh, overnight, he's praying overnight, and the next day after he says, pray for workers, 
because there's a plentiful harvest. And then he calls the 12 disciples to send them out because he multiplies himself. He's setting an example for discipleship, and he's sending them out. This is in Matthew 9, 35 to 38. When we look at the stories of Jesus, we see that there's nonstop work to be done. We see Jesus healing a woman bleeding for 12 years on the way to go heal someone else. Jesus teaching and preaching to those who are already ready to repent. I'll tell you, church, you don't have to open your eyes long to see that the world needs to turn to Jesus. Everywhere, in every country, we need to turn to Jesus. There is a harvest, and it is plentiful, and we will not run out of people. This is a sad fact, but we will never run out of people for the rest of our lives to tell them about Jesus. You can tell someone about Jesus every single day, and you'll never run out of a person. But it's not an excuse for us to wait, because we don't know when that day is going to end. Number two, the harvest is ready. The harvest is ready now. That's a reality. There are opportunities in windows in life that if they are not seized, they will be missed. My grandparents, thank God they had kids because that, those are my parents, and that's why I'm alive today. But their opportunity in the window to have more kids is gone, right? Anything in life, there is an opportunity, and if you don't seize the opportunity, there are some things in life that you'll never get another chance. That's the same thing with the harvest. If you miss the harvest, are we really going to have another chance when the time's up? There are some things that we have an opportunity to say, this is the moment, this is now, we have a chance to do this now. That's your opportunity. If we don't seize the opportunity, it will be missed. John 9, 4 says this, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. This is a deep passage. This is, this is great. It's really profound. And, and Jesus is a little bit heavy-handed here, although it doesn't seem like it when we read it right there. But if you look in between the lines, Jesus is talking about night and day, but he's talking about a spiritual night and day. You see, Jesus, while he is on the earth, it's night, or, sorry, it's daytime, and even right now, it's still daytime, but there's a time that's going to come when it's night. Right now, while it's day, we can go out into the harvest, there's a plentiful harvest, so we can be out harvesting the crops all day long. But when it's nighttime, that's it. Game's over. There's, there's nothing left to harvest. It is over. And so we know Jesus is talking about his second coming. If you read the prophecies of, of Jesus in the Bible, there's about half of them that he fulfilled, and, and, and then there's another part that needs to be fulfilled, and that's the second coming of Jesus. All the nice, happy ones are the ones he fulfilled, okay? Jesus holding a lamb. I love that picture. My parents have it on their wall, okay? He did that. He's not coming back to hold a lamb, Okay, you read Revelation, you understand, uh, to quote my dad, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. Like the second coming of Jesus, it, you read Revelation, it's written in blood. That's the second coming of Jesus. So night is coming when no one can work. Jesus came the first time. We read the prophecies of what's going to happen the second time. And Jesus is saying, it's daytime. You need to harvest your crops because night is coming. And it's, we're, we're at evening right now. We're thinking it's been day, the whole, it's been day for 2,000 years. Well, it'll just keep going and going and going but we don't realize that night is coming when no one can work. Let me tell you, God is indeed a God of second chances, but God help us if we miss that second chance. God help us if we neglect to feed the poor. God help us if we don't seek justice for the oppressed and for the widowed. God help us if we continue to approve of rampant sin in our society. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
See, here's the problem in America is you have almost half, half of America saying, you know what, let's just focus on justice, 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 and widows and orphans and not worry about sin. We're going to do whatever we want, and anyone can do whatever they want. And James is like, no, you need that, but we need to, we need to be holy too. And you have another half saying, it's us four, no more. We're going to be holy, but we don't care about other people. We're not going to help them. And it's all about us and me, me, me. And it's like, no, okay, you actually need both. We need to care about those that need help. We need to care about justice. We need to care about the widow. But we also have to be holy before a holy God. We cannot continue to approve of rampant sin in our society and say, you know what, that's just okay. We can't continue to, to let people who need help and say, you know what, that's just okay. We need to do both. That's what is pure and holy before God the Father. That's true religion. And I would add, you know, God help us if we don't tell the whole world and preach the whole gospel for there are doors that are open that will close at the will of God. God, help us if we miss those windows of opportunity. God, help us if we miss those open doors. You go to the next slide here. Today I have a story that I want to share about my wife and I. We went on vacation, and we were in Fort Lauderdale. Now, we've been on a lot of mission trips in the past, like different things with our school and college. They're about like month-long mission trips. Uh, she mentioned El Salvador, uh, also Kenya, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Taiwan. Those are all separate trips. And God has done amazing things, awesome things. And uh, sometimes God wants to do work when you're not on the field. Like, you know, we need to be ready in season and out of season. And so even on vacation, God's like, hey, I'm going to send someone your way. And you're like, okay, God, I'm on vacation. You know, but we need to be ready. And so this is kind of one of those stories. Uh, my wife, I always tease, we have our annual baby. You know, so she was pregnant, of course. And so this was our first baby. And, uh, and we just got from Cleveland to Fort Lauderdale. We got off the airplane. She's pregnant, so she's off to the side sitting down. And I'm in line, this really long line, for a rental car. All right, there's like 30 people in front of me, and I'm standing in line. And there's these people that come behind me, and I'm not even kidding. They're probably the rudest people I've ever met. And this story will be amplified by COVID because, like, you know, some people don't have personal space. Like, they just don't get it. Like, they'll just be talking, and they're, like, right up in your face. Okay, these are those people. And I'm just like, dude, like, I can tell you're American. You should get this by now. We like our space. You go to other countries, and they'll just talk to you right up here. And I'm like, I can smell what you had for breakfast yesterday, you know. And, uh, but, okay, so I'm standing in line, and, and this guy comes up to me, and I'm not even kidding. He's, like, right up on me, like, right up on me, and his back is, like, sometimes touching my back. Okay. He's like huffing and puffing and he's sweaty. He's like maybe 45, 50 and he's standing there and I'm just like, this is awkward. So I immediately scoot up, even though I'm already close to the next person. And what he does, he scoots up immediately. Right. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So then next time they move up, I kind of do one of these, you know, now I'm standing here like this and I'm like moving my elbow. I'm like, all right, you can't do this now. And I'm not even kidding. My elbow is rubbing up against his belly. And I'm just like, dude, like, does someone say something? Like, this is not okay. And I kept my mouth shut during that time. I was just, okay, like, this, this is pretty self-evident that this is not okay. And, and, you know, my back is sweaty, but it's not my sweat. And, like, I'm just, I'm having a rough time. And then his wife is there, and she starts complaining. I'm like, you're one to complain. And, and so, oh, the airplane was too long. It's too this, too that, hot and cold and too long. And then they start complaining about kids. And I love kids. Because keep having them, okay? Love kids. They're great. And so she's like, oh. Who would bring their kids on an airplane? Listen, no one wants to bring their kid on an airplane. We dread that too. Like, I don't know, probably someone who doesn't want to leave their kid in another city. I'm not bringing them for the ride. We're going somewhere. Like, there's a whole reason why we're there. And so I, I got to say something. And so I look right at her, dead in the eyes. And I said, well, you were a kid once. That's the first thing I said. 
And she goes, no, I wasn't. So I turn around and I'm back to like being sweaty and, you know, doing all this. I'm just like, that, that was really bizarre. Like that was, <laughs> and so it's, it's, the awkwardness is so tangible. Okay. You can cut it with a knife. It's so tangible. And so, that, so she ends up breaking the silence because that's the only thing we had said up to that point. And she's like, no, you're right. You're right. I was a kid. And, uh, and so we start having some small talk and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm from Cleveland and, um, you know, things like that. And, uh, but then she said something that like completely just caught me off guard and changed the way I saw people. She looked me dead in the eyes and she said, we're looking for my son. She said, our son ran away from home and the last we heard is that he's in Fort Lauderdale by himself. See, they had no idea where they're going there, they bought a one-way ticket from Cleveland to Fort Lauderdale to wait in line in a rental car, and they are ready to hit the road, and they had no leads. That's what they told me. They're gonna, they're literally gonna start driving down every street, and here they are waiting to do that. You see, I thought I had them sized up, and I knew why they were the way they were, and that they were so rude, and that there was no reason they should be like that, and I was better than them. You never know what someone's going through. In that moment. I had seen what a lot of people don't see, what someone's actually going through, and they had opened up. And I was so thankful I had not ruined my testimony up to that point. I got to pray with them right there. I said, you're going ahead of me because you're looking for your son. I'm here on vacation with my wife. I thought, wow, what if we had a passion like that for the lost? Remind me of the father, the prodigal son, and the love that he has for his father, the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes for the one. I said, wow. You know, they, they could not delay. They were not going to wait six months. They were not going to wait two months or two weeks. The time was now. They were going to look for their son now because their son was lost. And, you know, sometimes it can become not our problem. That was their problem. You know, sometimes it's easy to hide behind statistics and be like, well, that's just someone on the other side of the country. That's just someone in France. That's just someone in Fort Lauderdale. But let me tell you, everybody is someone's son and daughter. Everybody is God's son and daughter. And what would make us buy a one-way ticket and go to the other side of the world or the other side of the country? It's because we know them. I think we need to remind ourselves that that's how God feels of every single lost person. What would he do to go and save us and find us is that he would send his son and he would go and buy a one-way ticket and die on that cross. I was convicted in that moment and our vacation was different. <laughs> God, forgive me of my sin because I had judged them when I had no right to judge. You know, what would I do if I was in their spot? I would do the same thing. I would be looking for my son. Let me tell you, church, the harvest is now. The harvest is ripe. And we must do the work while it is still day. Point number three, the harvest needs workers. This, this, the whole point is get to this point. This is up to us. Point number three. That's our, the whole rest of it is a given, whether we like it or not. Whether you like it or not, that their son was lost. They're given was there, what was in their court was what are they going to do about it? But their son was lost. And for us, we know the world is lost. The harvest needs workers. Matthew 9, 37, like I said, revisiting this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And Jesus calls the 12 apostles right after this verse. And we see Jesus multiplying himself for others to be sent out into the harvest. And Jesus was setting the example for discipleship. 
I'll tell you that historically there's always been a shortage of ministers in the church. Historically, there have always been a shortage of missionaries as well. There's a brief story of, of uh, if you already read your Bible, read church history. Like I said, if you don't read your Bible, start reading it. If you already read your Bible, I would encourage you, church history will change your life. Start with missions. There's amazing books of stories of missionaries. So many stories. These are stories that need to be told. I'm amazing stories. And so, uh, but seeing how people came to the faith, Russia has a really interesting one. This is about a thousand years ago. Uh, Russia, uh, they just had their first emperor, and he said, we want a religion to unify our country. And it's the weirdest thing. They actually went on like a shopping list and, and picked a religion. They sent out uh, people to go scout and look at other religions, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, I- Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, which is a thing. And, uh, and so they got all these religions, and they said, here's a report of each one. And the people who looked at Christianity, they said, this is it. This is heaven on earth. This is real. This won't just unify our country, but the, this actually is real. And so they, they picked Christianity, and it's an interesting story. And so they opened up their country, and they had a bunch of people come in. And for almost the next thousand years, until they had their revolution, uh, Russia was a huge center of Christianity, especially Moscow was actually a city that was started by Christians. Because the capital used to be Kiev, but the Moscow was a place that was started by Christians and became such popular, so popular and so big. And so that was like the center at that time. And so um, Russia came to the faith, and, and it was incredible. And a lot of countries have like crazy stories like this. But Mongolia, you can go to the next slide. Mongolia has a story. And the worship team, you guys can come on up. Mongolia has a story that could have been similar. Like I said, I read church history. There's so many countries. Uh, I even think of Japan. Japan was in, in the 1600s was almost half Christian in Japan. And this was because they had been closed for many years until like the late 1800s. We reopened them, and then we ended up getting into war. But hundreds of years before, they were almost half Christian. And they had like a bloody massacre. And it was crazy history of what had happened in Japan. But there's so many countries of these things that we don't even realize the history that they have with Christianity. I want to tell the one of, of Mongolia, and obviously we're missionaries to France, but I want to think broader than just ourselves because the whole world needs to be reached. But in 1266, Kublai Khan the grandson of Kangas Khan sent a request by Marco Polo to the Christian church in Rome for 100 men to teach Christianity in his court. Now, if you remember Genghis Khan, he invaded and burned like cities all over the place. They had this huge empire. And he was not a Christian, but his wife was. If you guys kind of know that, there's part of the story. And she told him, she says, don't burn the churches down. So when they destroyed all these places, uh, they destroyed the mosques. They destroyed homes and everything, but they left the churches alone and actually really created a lot of tensions in the Middle East because the Middle East was like, hey, I see something still standing. <laughs> it was probably you guys. And so there was this whole misunderstanding there. So this guy, Kublai Khan, who's now ruling Mongolia, he had a Christian grandmother. Let me tell you, thank God for Christian grandmothers. And so he had some of this influence and he realizes, hey, this would be great for our country if we unified under Christianity. And so they sent a request to the church in Rome for 100 men to teach Christianity in their hearts. 100 men. We want 100 missionaries to come to our country in 1266. And tragically, the Pope only sent two friars. That's like two deacons. They're unordained men. And they never made it. They turned back halfway to China because the weather was harsh. And by the time the first batch of missionaries arrived 30 years later in Beijing, 1294, Kublai Khan had already died, and the Mongolians had already turned to Tibetan Buddhism. You had a country asking for missionaries. 
literally open and saying, we want to hear about Jesus. I think of the Macedonian man in Paul's vision that says, come tell me about Jesus. Paul could have done nothing. That was point number three. He could have done nothing. But he went. Other, other stories. There's so many stories of Christians that went. But this is a story where we did nothing. And I asked myself, what were we doing in 1266 that was so important with our daily lives? What was the church doing that we just let a country go? You know, for 700 years, that country... People lived and died not knowing about Jesus because of a window missed for 30 years. We think, oh, it'll be daytime forever. We always have time. And the, the doors will be open. We we'll always have time. Let me tell you, you never know when the windows will close. You never know when the doors will shut. I say, God, would you forgive us as a church? Would you forgive us? I, I believe that there will be hell to pay for a church that sleeps on the lost. It says, you know what? You're not important. You know, there's a story of, of uh, the French Revolution. I think of the, the American Revolution, and we're going to have, uh, you know, next month is the 4th of July. Thank God for our country and the freedoms that we have and the principles that we are founded upon because they really have influenced us over the past, you know, two, uh, over 200 years. The principles that we have, many of which were biblical, not everyone. I understand that every founder was Christian, but man, we had some biblical principles that we were founded upon. And the fact that the government has no business telling the church what to do. But the French Revolution, just like the, the Russian Revolution, squandered and killed so many of the church. I know many of you guys know this, but a lot of people don't realize the French Revolution came before that, and it was just as brutal. See, the French, it wasn't a slow fade. They had a massacre of Christians in France. Once the revolution was on the way, it was just after our revolution. If you ever forget what king was killed in the guillotine, it was the king, the French king that aided us in the Revolutionary War. Remember, it was us and the French against the British. We had help, and it was the French. But that king that sided with us, he was the one that they killed. Once it was on its way, hundreds of thousands of Christians that weren't Catholic, they were kicked out of the country. and They, they did not return. They were kicked out of the country. And by the way, as you start hearing some of this, sometimes people say, it'll never happen in our country. It can happen anywhere. And so thousands of church leaders were killed, those that stayed behind. Thousands of church leaders were killed by the state government. They, they seized all church property including monasteries, hospitals, which hospitals started in France. If you think of hospital, think of France. Uh, it was the church in France that started hospitals. All, all the hospitals were seized. The schools, they abolished the tithe. that was now illegal in France for a few years to tithe. Forced were, were, uh, priests who were left were forced to swear an oath either to the government or to the church. If they swore to the church, they would be killed. And the government became officially the controller of the church. But that was not enough for them. On the 23rd of November of 1793, churches were closed to be converted into warehouses. Manufacturing workers or even stables, streets, and public places were renamed to further distance itself from Christianity. Does that sound familiar in America? Things that were once Christian? We don't want a Christian history, anything tying to it. This is crazy. The calendar of, of 1,700 years, the calendar was wiped out because it starts with Jesus, and we can't have that. So they started a new one, with year one being the year of the revolution. The seven-day week, which is founded in the Bible, in the Judaism and Christianity, they got rid of the seven-day week for a few years in France. They had 10-day weeks. They actually did this in France, 10-day weeks, because they didn't want you to find a Sabbath. They wanted Sunday to be eliminated, even in the weeks. That's how secular they had become. And the government then learned that something must take the place of Christianity, so they chose the cult of reason. It was this new rising cult where they would worship and have idols, and they would worship founders of the revolution. And even Notre Dame, they had stripped that bear, and that became a center of the cult of reason, where they would worship these, these new pagan gods that they had. 
in these churches because the Christians were already killed. Eventually, the reign of terror, that's what that was called, came to an end, but all is not restored. France is still marked by this. That's their history. We have our revolution, something amazing that has this Christian principles. That's their revolution that they're founded upon. Can you imagine that? Having the opposite of our revolution. The person who ended it was, of all people, Napoleon, the first emperor of France. And he restored some health to the church, but he said, you still swear to me. And that's been the attitude of, of the French and the church ever since. Let me tell you, church, that we 